This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nabil Biagio and here is what's coming up. Nigerians should expect a robust campaign, uh, devoid of hate speech, devoid of rancor, and what have you. But most importantly, Nigerians should expect politicians to use this opportunity to sell their manifestos. That's Peter Ojofor, a retired civil servant in Nigeria, on expectations for February's national elections. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The trial of, of former Guinean President Musa Dadi's Kamra and 10 other individuals implicated in a 2009 massacre began today in the capital, Conakry. More than 150 people were killed in the massacre, and more than 100 women were raped as security forces violently dispersed protesters who gathered at a stadium in the capital. VOS French service reporter Idris Fall tells me victims and survivors of the events and their families are yearning for truth and justice. People waited 13 years to make it happen, and uh, I think uh, all the survivors wanted this. Uh, during all these years, they were organizing rallies, asking for the government to judge those guys who did the transform September 28, 2009. Conakry was hell. It's in, uh, really, it is the real word I could use because opposition organized a kind of rally in that stadium. Uh, around 50,000 people gathered in the stadium. And then uh, the head of the, the elite guard presidential guard, they call it Beret Rouge, Red Berets, come with uh, policemen and uh, military men, even some officials, in two huge cars. They began throwing uh, gas to the people uh, in the stade, and then they began, began shooting at the people inside the stade. It was panic, it was desperation. People began running out of the start and they, they chased them into all the streets of Bamako. And uh, really, I remember seeing people being shot dead in, in the street, women being raped publicly. The reports say uh, more than 150 people uh, were killed and more than 100 women were raped on that day in, in 2009 uh, when they gathered to protest at the stadium. Tell me about the accused. I understand uh, 11 people in total, are, including uh, former President Musa Dadis Kamara, are standing trial today. Yes. Musa Dadis Kamara, he arrived um, on power on uh, December 2008 let's say, about one year earlier, even less than a year. That coup, he did it uh, six hours after the death of former President Lansana Conte had been announced. Lansana Conte had been powered down there in Guinea for more than 24 years, yes. And now he's standing trial. Uh, tell me a little bit about how he was um, 
captured or you know surrendered to the court? Well, he came by himself because after that incident of those killing the the day of horror in Conakry, maybe two months later, maybe in December, it happened in September, in the beginning of December, this guy, somebody shot him in the head and uh, he, he survived because he was sent to Morocco. They treated him there for a while and then and he was in exile, living in uh, Burkina Faso. It is when the set trial was set up, he himself came, returned, because he said that he had to, to tell the truth to the court. Okay. But himself, he was not involved directly to the killings. He said at the time he did not order anybody to do that. And uh, I, I remember him saying that it was uncontrolled army soldiers who did that, and he could not control them. But uh, I think the trial will say at the end, uh, sure, guilty or not guilty. Yes, of course. The trial commenced today. What what happened at the opening of the trial, and how long do we expect it to to run for? Well, how, how long? To be honest, I don't know because. Uh, you have a former president, 11 guy indicted, and uh, maybe you're going to begin have the hearing, but it's going to last, I think, a few days because uh, everybody is looking at the trial, and uh, it's going to take a while. And they're going to stay in jail until the end of the trial. That's VOA French service reporter Idriss Fal. He spoke with me this past hour here in Washington. Campaigning for Nigeria's 2023 election begins today. And the Independent National Electoral Commission says political parties need to ban hate speech from their campaigns. Mike Mbonye reports from Lagos. The Independent National Electoral Commission of Nigeria has advised registered political parties and all candidates to avoid hate speech and abusive language during their campaigns. The commission says... Campaigning for presidential and national assembly seats begins today, while governorship and state assembly campaigns kick off on October 12th. Professor Mahmoud Yakubu, chairman of the commission, has urged the political parties to pay attention to the country's constitution as they campaign. He says state-owned media organizations should give equal coverage to all political parties. Privately owned media should do the same, he says, as long as political parties pay the appropriate fees for broadcasting campaign rallies and airing advertising jingles. Some Nigerians are sharing their expectations as the campaigns begin. Peter Ijofo is a retired civil servant. Nigerians should expect a robust campaign, uh, devoid of hate speech, devoid of rancor and what have you. But most importantly, Nigerians should expect politicians to use this opportunity to sell their manifestos. Kemia Jai is a housewife. She says parties should focus on youths and empower workers. One big concern for her has been the strike that has shuttered universities for months, leaving young adults with nothing to do. 
The strike have put so many of them at home, and they have they have diverted their mind to things that they supposed that they did not imagine doing. And again, increase of salary. The way things are in this country now, things have gone more than three hundred percent in this country, and the salary paying to the government workers cannot meet up to their salary. Please, what I want is for the government, for the politicians to focus on that. Joy eBay is a small trader and says people should not be denied the right to vote on election day. I want the election to be free and fair. They should allow us to vote our choice, not for them to force us or divert some people's attention. They should improve on youth. They should give them work and allow them to go back to school. Because for the past six months, they are at home doing nothing. The presidential and national assembly elections will take place on February 25th, 2023, while governorship and state elections will be on March 11th. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Lagos. News reports say satellite images show the buildup of opposing forces in towns along Ethiopia's border with Eritrea. The photos, which were taken by Maxar Technologies Incorporation on September 26, show military vehicles and artillery positions in the town of Shiraro, near Tigray's northern border with Eritrea. Reuters says images taken a week earlier reveal the deployment of weaponry in the town. Reuters News Service says it could not independently verify the contents of the images, and officials from both countries have not commented on the photos. Two weeks ago, Tigray forces said Eritrean and Ethiopian troops had taken control of Shiraro but had been pushed back. Fighting resumed in August between Tigray's regional government, Ethiopian federal forces and Eritrea, which it says it called up reservists for military service earlier this month. Tigray says Eritrea has been shelling its towns along the border over the past months. The United States and four of its allies have affirmed their support for the UN's new special representative for Libya, Abdullah Batili, in his mission to promote political stability and reconciliation. Wolfgang Putzai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, explains to VOA senior analyst Mohamed Shinawi the significance of that statement. The new UN special representative has certainly a challenging mission. He is not welcomed by everyone in Libya. Prime Minister Dabeba just sent a letter to the Secretary-General a day prior to the confirmation of Batiyi, attempting to prevent him. This very strong statement by the Americans, together with the other leading Western nations, makes it very clear to the Libyans that the U.S. and the others take the new U.N. Special Representative very serious and fully support him. They have actually high expectations in him, also based on his reputation from his previous U.N. assignments and his insights in the work of Ansmit. One must not forget, last year, Badiyi was tasked by the Security Council to lead an independent strategic review of Ansmil, so he has some very detailed knowledge about what's going on within Ansmil and in Libya. I would say it will be very difficult for the Libyans to ignore him. There is no way to replace UN mediation in Libya. The United States have enough other global commitments and challenges, and they are certainly not willing to take the lead for Libya. No other organization or nation would be able to do so, and the Libyans won't be able to achieve an agreement on their own. My advice to the Libyans is, if you really want to have peace and stability in your country, you should better fully cooperate with the new UNSR. 
Five countries confirmed their support for the United Nations mediation aimed at laying a constitutional basis to enable free, fair, and inclusive presidential and parliamentary elections in all parts of Libya in the shortest possible time, agreeing on a unified executive body with a mandate focused on preparing for the elections. What does that mean? They have realized that the continuation of the current situation could again lead to a major escalation to a new war. Currently, there is no political body in Libya who enjoys the uncontested legitimacy. The international recognized parliament, the HUR, was already elected in June 2014 by merely 630,000 Libyans. That's about 14% of the Libyans in the voting age. Later on and under pressure of Islamist militias, the Supreme Court ruled the elections unconstitutional. The rival parliament, the High Council of State, includes some representatives from the first interim parliament, which was already elected in July 2012. The others were simply appointed by the High Council of State. Both houses were enshrined in the Shkirat Agreement in December 2015, for an interim period, which lasts already now seven years. Maybe with the exception of the rival Prime Minister Bashaga, none of the politicians in Libya has a serious interest in elections, as they can personally live with the current situation very, very well. It is really a matter of urgency to clean up all this mess, to get rid of all those before it is too late. But would elections work while Libya is still having two rival governments? That's a good question. Prime Minister Tabeba is legitimated only by the non-elected Libya Political Dialogue Forum, and the HOR has withdrawn confidence from him. His rival Fatih Bashaga was only appointed by the House of Representatives to replace Tabeba, but he has next to nil practical relevance. I would say it is key to have one government, one government which is able to run the elections, but I'm not so sure that the current Tabeba government, without any major changes, would be able, especially Uh, maybe even more important, would be willing to do so. So there is a need to change also the government. There is a need to find someone who is able and willing to organize the elections. That was Wolfgang Putzai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed Ashinawi. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Nabil Biadjo in Washington. Kenyan soldiers will arrive in the DRC Congo next week as part of the East African Community Regional Force that will help fight insecurity in North and South Kivu and Ituri provinces. DRC President Felixi Chizukede said Monday that his country is ready to welcome regional troops for a planned operation against rebels who have caused civilians untold suffering. The regional forces are expected to include contingents from Uganda, Kenya, South Sudan, and Tanzania. Burundian forces have been deployed in South Kivu province since August 15 under an earlier bilateral agreement. But Helen Epstein, an American professor of human rights and public health with a special interest in East Africa, tells VOA's Douglas Impuga that the DRC government would be better placed to solve the problem. The involvement, uh, the re-entry of M23 into DR Congo is extremely disturbing, and uh, Rwanda's involvement with that group is also very disturbing. Uh, However, there are also some indications uh, that Uganda may also be supporting M23, and that therefore this new regional force that's being considered, we're just not sure whether it makes sense for countries like 
Uganda to be involved because we know that Uganda has long had an interest in controlling that part of the region, particularly already both Uganda and Rwanda have extensive trading networks in that part of the region because this is where uh, much of the world's uh, gold and the coal tan that powers computers and other natural resources, timber and so on, uh, come from. And Uganda has long been involved in um, exploiting the people and the natural resources of this area. We also know that since Uganda sent its forces into eastern Congo, in, into North Kivu in particular, in Ituri in November 2021, with the expressed aim of battling um, an Islamist group called the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces. In fact, the number of attacks and atrocities com- com- committed in that region has actually increased, often uh, not far from where the Ugandans are stationed. This is very disturbing, and uh, we don't quite know what the real story is, but just as Rwanda has been recused and not invited to join this regional force, it probably makes sense uh, for Uganda to be excluded from it too because of its longstanding uh, interest in depriving Congolese of their rights. Do you think the rest of the African community force can make a difference given the complexity of this com- conflict? My sense is this is something that I think it's preferable that the Congolese deal with it themselves. There are known people who have generals and, and military leaders who are in the Congolese armed forces who are stationed in that region and commanding other troops, their own troops, and they are sanctioned by the international community. They've been committing atrocities. Sometimes those atrocities are actually labeled ADF or M23 atrocities. And I think that in a way, if the Congolese were able to sort out Uh, the rot in the system, I have no other way of explaining it, but the rot in their own system in their armed forces, uh, which seem to be colluding with very negative elements uh, in that region and and essentially in, I I believe, in these neighboring countries, then they could go a long way towards sorting out their own problems. One major issue, for example, is that Congolese forces are unpaid um, or, or paid very, very little if they're just standing by. But if they're involved in a conflict, their salaries rise dramatically, which gives them a perfect incentive to stoke up terror and problems. Uh, We also know that a number of attacks on villages uh, that have been attributed to rebel groups, particularly the Allied Democratic Forces, which is another group that's been uh, accused of wreaking havoc in that region, were actually committed by Congolese forces. Uh, some of which may be working in in concert with the Ugandans and Rwandans, we don't know, but they are certainly responsible for a lot of the terror in that region. The Congolese need to first clean up their own act before introducing more troops and more confusion, because it's not really clear, you know, who's the enemy in that region. I mean, there are many, many, many differences of opinion about who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. That was Helen Epstein, an American professor of human rights and public health with a special interest in East Africa. He's speaking with viewers Douglas Mpuga. (music) 
As the world marks International Day for Universal Access to Information today, the UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, says African countries continue to lag behind in ensuring public access to information. Reporter Ruben Chama spoke with Misako Ito, UNESCO Regional Advisor for Communication and Information in Africa. She began by giving highlights of UNESCO's recent findings. UNESCO every year we conduct a survey to request on the status of implementation of uh, access to information because this is now included into the SDGs indicators and basically uh, in Africa unfortunately only uh, as of the data of last year only 22 countries have adopted an access to information law so this is less than half of the countries And globally, we have seen tremendous progress because last year, it's two-thirds of the member states. So there is this tremendous global progress in terms of adoption, recognitions for the importance of this right to know. But when it comes to Africa, unfortunately, the adoption is still really, you know, weaker than the rest of the world. What are some of these countries where you see the progress? Which countries would you say are shining examples in the region? Maybe I can talk about the example of Kenya because uh, Kenya has uh, this uh, law adopted um, on access to information and it also has its institution ombudsman, which is uh, represented by uh, the Commission of uh, Administrative Justice, which is the real um, step in implementing the law, because without having these commissions, you cannot, the law will stay on the paper. So uh, I believe uh, Kenya uh, is uh, very advanced and can also provide some model for other countries uh, in Eastern Africa. In your view, what are some of the typical ways in which governments or even organizations suppress universal access to information? Unfortunately, for example, Vietnam has uh, adopted an Access to uh, Information Act a few years back, but it's really like a more censorship act than access to information. So you can do it by using uh, laws. You can restrict access in terms of uh, practices by imposing, for example, a very high fee. When uh, people request to uh, access to information, you have to pay. So that is also a barrier to access. Uh, the delay of responses and under the you know, good practices, you have a certain limit in the number of the days where the government has to respond to this access to information request. So that constitutes a barriers for access. When you make the processes complicated and heavy for uh, the citizen, that constitutes a real barriers for access to information. That was Misako Ito, UNESCO Regional Advisor for Communication and Information in Africa, speaking with VOA's Robin Chama from Nairobi. According to the French news agency AFP, Mali says it will not allow regional leaders to le- regional heads of state to impose a solution to its standoff with Ivory Coast. Leaders from the economic community of West African states, including those from Ghana, Senegal and Togo, are expected this week to try to alleviate tensions between Bamako and Yamasukro. Mali arrested 46 Ivorian troops linked to the UN peacekeeping mission 
upon their arrival in the country on July the 10th. Bamako accuses them of being anti-government mercenaries who threaten security. Ivory Coast says they are supposed to provide support for the German contingent of the UN mission. Mali's Foreign Minister Abdoulaye Diop told VOA's bumper service that the, that the government will work with others to find common ground but will not accept an imposed decision. He said the case is in, is in the hands of the country's justice system, though it was willing to accept mediation from regional leaders, including Togo. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Neville Biagio in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of uh, my producer, Mokbel Yabaro, and studio engineer, Nelson Lopez, thank you for tuning in and for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>